Hi, and welcome to our third edition of 2020 Politics War Room. I'm Al Hunt with my partner, James Carville, who is over in London. We have so much to talk about uh, today. Impeachment. Christy Harvey is going to take on these two old white guys. And we're going to talk about, in addition to impeachment, we're talking about the great clash, the great political clash, Elizabeth Warren and James Carville. Elizabeth Warren's rejected James Carville's approach to politics. But first, we have something even better. We have Ed Luce, who is the distinguished chief Washington correspondent and columnist for the Financial Times. Ed, once again, you have elevated this program. <laughs> Thank you. Ed, you, your, your reach is global. You write about everything. You've been based overseas. You've covered Washington with great distinction. You've written about impeachment and Trump. But today we want to focus on the British election and, and, and Brexit because it's less than a month away. Uh, from my point of view, the conservatives, the Tories have screwed everything up in the last three years. First David Cameron, then May, and now Boris Johnson. But it looks like they're going to win a big victory December 12. Is that right? And if so, why? How? It looks like that. But, you know, a week's a long time in politics and there's still four of them. Um, and the last three times the pollsters have given us an indication of an outcome in Britain. The pollsters have been wrong, namely Theresa May called a general election in 2017 um, with the expectation she'd win big and she lost a majority and then ended up, um, depending on the um, DUP, the Northern Irish Party, for for a majority. Um, before that, the referendum, of course. Polls narrowly predicted a Remain victory in 2016. And then before that, in 2015, when Cameron had to go to the country after five years um, in government, it predicted um, a hung parliament or a Labour victory and actually... Um, um, camp, the Conservatives won. So it's too soon. To, it's too uh, soon. The, the British electorate are in an even more sort of restless, promiscuous political mood than they than they were in the last three occasions. But they we're going to get James in this in just a minute. But from afar, from across the pond, you look at Boris Johnson. You say, "My, uh, I mean, this is this is Trump squared." Uh, I, I don't know that he believes in anything. He has gone back. He's been rejected by Parliament. Uh, so why shouldn't this be a slam dunk for the opposition? It's extraordinary well, for two reasons. One, Boris is playing this line um, that uh, of Brexit fatigue. Everybody's fed up with Brexit. They can't hear another word about it. It's only the fanatics on either side, on Leave and Remain, that, that have any appetite to even discuss this issue. And he's got people believing quite falsely, I mean completely contrary to reality, that if Britain leaves... Then we end the Brexit conversation. In reality, what happens is it then begins. Sure. This isn't even the end of the beginning. Uh, then you have years and years and years of negotiations on the detail of Britain's future relationship with the European Union. But he's got people believing this Brexit fatigue. And the other reason um, uh, is that Jeremy Corbyn is leader of the Labour Party. And Jeremy Corbyn's um, personal approval ratings are deeply double-digit negative. He is not trusted as a potential prime minister. Um, to the extent that Boris is seen as this sort of tall, uh, strong, decisive, principled leader by comparison. Again, complete nonsense. And and both of these nostrums, A, we will end Brexit. Brexit fatigue will be satisfied by going out of Europe. And B, um, Corbyn, you know, is a minnow compared to the giant Johnson. Both give you real cause to wonder about the wisdom of crowds. Yeah. Yeah, Ed, Ed, think Edward R. Murrow in London. Think Walter <laughs> Lippmann visiting the world's capitals. And now James Carville in London. 
James, well, give give the give the perspective from across the pond. Well, this is my my perspective. I'm gonna get Ed to react to it. I find what's happening here utterly frightening when I think about the United States. I mean, Boris Johnson is strikes me as a kind of a clownish guy almost. Uh, the Tory governments have been massively unsuccessful. Has screwed things up yet. Uh, you know, it, it, as of now, it looks like you would have to rate them the favorites. And if the we have the, the carbonization of the Democratic Party in the United States, it, I, I fear we could end up in the same place. Uh, you have any reaction to that hypothesis, Ed? Yeah, I, I agree with you. You've got a choice between um, terrible and, and extremely awful. Um, and the space for anybody within either party who is reasonable attached to, to some degree of empirical reality is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. There is a sort of Gresham's law, they call it, the, the, the bad driving out the good, uh, working across the political spectrum in Britain. Um, and I see similar signs that, you, that you're, you're alluding to here in the United States. I think in both cases it's actually worse on the right than the left, but the left is beginning to show an appetite for catching up. It's further down the road in Britain. What's sort of also disturbing about this is Britain, you know, Britain might not be a huge world power anymore, but there is an affinity between what happens in Britain and what happens in America. There just seems to be a more than a coincidence of timings and shifts in public sentiments. 2016 Thatcher, being the most Reagan, obvious. Blair, Clinton. Exactly. And, yeah. and now populism. Um, and... You know, if if we're seeing a, um, a Boris re-election, a conservative victory, right, but the conservatives being in the process of being rewarded for spectacular failure, for spectacular failure, for malpractice and negligence on on an epic scale in Britain, then I fear that linkage um, with what might happen in 2020 in America. You know, it, it strikes me that the entire Caucasian world, for, for for lack of a better word, for from from you know Kiev all the way to San Francisco. I mean, if you look at Hungary, you look at what's happening in Poland, and you you know France, UK being prime example, the United States. It, it, it seems that there's great dissatisfaction among Western Caucasian people, and you know a lot, a lot of it's coming from the right, but a lot of it comes from the left, and it it, it seems. Like we have a void of leadership, particularly in the UK and the US right now. I mean, you know, it used to be you get, you know, you'd mention them, and there was sort of this linkage between, you know, different leaders. And boy, the Boris Johnson, Donald Trump just doesn't have the ring of Churchill and Roosevelt. At least to me, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, somebody was asking um, the other day um, which part of the Western world you could look to to find, however small the country. You know, down to Andorra or Liechtenstein, where you can actually find a leader worth admiring uh, in today's um, Western democracy. And there, I, I did, after some struggle, come up come up with one sort of half answer, which is Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach of Ireland, who has played a very good hand, and where populism of left and right is very subdued. The Sinn Féin is is Ireland's both left and right wing populist party. It's nationalist, but it's also got Marxian economics. Is nowhere to be seen electorally in Ireland. And I think one of the reasons for the fact that Ireland is happy. Ireland, the country once dominated by the Catholic Church, with a gay half Hindu prime half Indian prime minister who's Hindu, um, quite happy with his performance. Uh, the populists nowhere to be seen. And I think uh, and and a country that has seen mass immigration. 
in the last 20 years, Why? which, of course, we have too. Um, why is it that that dog isn't barking in Ireland? And I think there's a simple answer to that, which, you know, we've been lacking in America and we've been lacking in Britain, which is that the rising tide there is lifting all boats economically, that, that there is really strong across the board middle class income growth. Um, and whilst that lasts... Um, the populist dog isn't barking in Ireland. But other than Ireland, very, very hard. Is there, is there an explanation? Why, why wages growing in Ireland and in, in not Britain? Part or, of, or why, why not in the U.S. that much? Is, is, there, is there some policy or they're just, they're just lucky? Um, there's a little bit of sort of one-offedness about it, um, namely that the Irish are pretty good at um, tax competition. And so you've got most of the big tech companies have uh, their European headquarters there. But... You know, that's the bit that can't be replicated. And I think post-Brexit, the French might try and rein Ireland in in exchange for having backed Ireland to the hilt over their Brexit negotiations. This model might be limited. But the Irish have done a pretty good job at the same time of investing in skills development and modernizing the country's infrastructure and the kinds of things that we could do um, in the United States uh, and in Britain. And... and and so we should we should pay attention to that as well. And, and let's summer. get let's get back to the British election just for a second. Twenty nine days. What I mean, you said it's not a foregone conclusion. The polls have been wrong in the past. You can't see Corbyn getting a majority in Parliament, can you? It's pretty hard to see how that would happen. I mean, the the his best scenario was that Nigel Farage's Brexit party would run against the Tories. Conservatives in every constituency, and therefore split the Leave vote, and you know allow Labour um, to to win in many more seats than the polls indicate it would normally win in. But Farage has now said he's not going to contest the Brexit Party; he's not going to contest any Conservative-held seats. So, what's the likely? If you picked a non-Boris outcome, what's the most likely? What would it be? It would be a coalition of some of what? What sort? Well, it's very hard to imagine that because it would need a coalition would need to involve the Liberal Party, uh, the Liberal Democrat Party, and and led by Joe Swinson. And she, you know, her whole thing is we we're basically the Conservative Party for pro Europeans. She's she's moderate pro business, centrist, centrist, centre right, and she's uh, the hundred top constituencies they're targeting. I think like ninety four of them are Conservative held. So any any whiff of her being nice to um, uh, or, or um, indicating she could make a deal with Jeremy Corbyn would be death to that strategy. The Tory, the pro-European Tories would stay with the Tory party rather than allow um, Jeremy Corbyn to become prime minister. So it's really hard to imagine a Lib Lab coalition yeah. government with Corbyn as leader. It's very easy to imagine one if somebody like David Miliband were leader or a Tony Blair type figure were leader. But that's not where the Labour Party is, I'm afraid. James, they what sound as screwed up as we are. Yeah, I mean, what, what are they? I mean, usually people in a party want to win, and they stick in with someone that basically has very little chance to win. What's his hold? Is is that Labour Party become so leftist, radicalized that that they don't even care about winning anymore? Uh, it's a really good question. I mean, the grip, the personal grip that Corbyn has over the party through this momentum movement, um, which, you know, there's a lot of, I don't know, former Trotskyites, there's a lot of quite thuggish leftist figures involved in this movement. And there's a lot of intimidation at the grass, grassroots of people who don't follow the leader's line. Um, uh, and so I, I think it's quite hard to translate that into 
you know, a rational, um, a rational Labour Party um, leadership um, policy because there's, there's fear um, and people have been threatened with being deselected, which is basically primaried, uh, kicked out of the party. There have been expulsions. There's been there's been inti- old style militant intimidation tactics going on around Corbyn's people. So the fact that he's got this image as a sort of vegetable plot tilling um, rather eccentric uncle, benign uncle figure, you know, is completely belied by the tactics of the people around him, this mo- this move- momentum movement. Um, There's a word that comes to mind that maybe Jeremy Coleman might like called Stalinist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, to have, sorry, I mean, I'm sure he operates in a democracy that he wants to, but I mean, it's intimidating people in your own party and... What Mark Shields used to say, that a political party that is looking for for heretics and not converts is a political party that's not going to win an election. And it seems to me that the leftist movement in the United States and and the Labor Party in Britain are, are, you know, anybody that doesn't agree with them is being excluded, which strikes me as not a very smart way to go about winning an election. It's it's very dumb, and I like the heretic convert sort of thing because that that pretty much fits uh, as a description how he's running the party. He's um, so pure and in love with his own purity um, that, that that any sense he could compromise that he he would behave in a less holy fashion, um, you know, is just not broached in his company. Um, you saw this week with Evo Morales, the Bolivian leader, you know, who tried to rig the election in uh, Bolivia, um, standing down. This is the one foreign policy issue. Jeremy Corbyn, during an election campaign, sees fit to comment on publicly um, by saying he was removed in a military coup, which is complete nonsense. Um, But Morales is in that sort of Cuban socialist, Venezuela, um, uh, Chavesta mode that that is Corbyn's ideological um, well. And that's the one issue in a general election on, on, on the foreign policy plane. That he sees fit, fit to That's comment. Remarkable, on. that is. Let's let's assume for for a moment. Understand the polls uh, can be wrong; it can change. That Boris wins on December twelfth and puts together whatever, whether he has a majority or whatever coalition he puts together. What happens with Brexit? Does he take uh, uh, Britain out in January? He takes Britain out in January on the basis of this deal that he negotiated a couple of weeks ago. That is not that much different from the deal Theresa May negotiated. Um, and then you have a new deadline, which is the end of December 2020, to complete the trade agreement. And so that, that then becomes the, the next no-deal exit opportunity. And what are the economic implications from when the people you talk to of, of, of that occurring? Um, they're, they're not good. I mean, Britain's already dropped from being amongst the highest growth rates in the G7 in 2016 to now the lowest, um, a little bit above Italy, but second lowest maybe. Um, but the real implications on investment, people are just, you know, Tesla just announced it cannot in, do its European headquarters in Britain because the uncertainty is too great. There are many Teslas that are thinking, no, we just can't predict anything. So the Carville family is actually having its family reunion at our ancestral home, which a lot of Carville still in, County Monaghan, which is right on the border with Ormai. It was bandit country. It was the, the center of the troubles. If if they pull out of the EU, 
when we go there, we're going to have to go. Could when you, I'd ask my cousins, are we in the, the Republic of Ireland or the UK? And they sort of thinking, looking, say, well, no, yeah, we're in the. There's no border now. And are, are they going to have to go back to having sentry points to to cross back and forth? Not under the deal that Johnson negotiated. There, the the checks, the customs checks, are in the Irish Sea rather than on the island island of Ireland. So not under that bit of the deal. So to that extent, Leah Varadkar has been very, very good. Europe, there's not been a crack. It's stuck It's stuck with the Irish position, which I believe is the correct position, that you cannot have those sentry posts back. So for the time being, if the Boris deal holds, that at least is one silver lining to an otherwise spectacularly bad deal. Uh, I'll take it because I think we're coming up here in like August of of, of next year. It's already been been set. I, I want to go a little bit different direction. As you know, Ben, I've told you many times, and as you are, we're both big fans of Martin Wolf, who <laughs> writes a weekly column for the Financial Times. And Martin's column today was about the rise of China, which is something that Al has been, you know, talking about for, for, for a long time because of the Graham Allison book. But when you read Martin's column, what you walk away with is we're losing valuable time under Trump. I mean, the Chinese are rolling ahead, and we're we're not rolling sideways. We're kind of in reverse. And I, I, I thought his column was very good, but was kind of a wake-up call for, for the United States. How did you, how did you take that column? Well, um, Martin, I think, has been... Um has been very clear on the the mishandling, Trump administration's mishandling of China since day one. Uh, it, it, it's really important to pick up what a guy called Long Yongche, the former Chinese chief negotiator, said last week in a conference in <laughs> Hong Kong. And he said that we want Trump to be reelected. He's the ideal negotiating opponent. He gives his strategy on Twitter. Um, this is, uh, I mean, he was, by Chinese standards, immensely scathing of Donald Trump as a as a as an, a negotiating opponent and so we would be very happy to see him reelected. Yeah, and it was like at an investment conference. I'd love to know if that was intentional. He was just kind of popping off and it got out. I I, I don't know the answer to that, but I saw I saw the same thing and of course they the Albert you could address this. the myth that he's some kind of a great negotiator is it, one of the, the all-time myths about Trump, I think. Oh, wait, wait a minute. Didn't he end uh, Obamacare? Uh, you know, he negotiated that, right? Uh, yeah. And then, yeah. No, he's You're a terrible waiting. negotiator. And I think you two are absolutely right. And also, let's not forget, the dominant power in the Middle East today is probably Russia, uh, thanks to Donald Trump. So he's been, you know, it's just been dreadful all around the globe. Before we lose Ed, uh, James, let me, he is also a great expert in American politics. Give us your take and give us what you think the British take is, such as it is. I mean, I know it's different whether it's uh, Johnson or others on uh, Trump and impeachment. Um, I think it's like a lot of people, um, the Brits are still a bit confused about the difference between impeachment and removal. And so you have to keep reminding them it's the equivalent of indictment. And therefore, you know, when I or you or most of us will say, look, it's highly likely to happen, the guy's going to be impeached and he will then... He will then be acquitted and he will then behave as if he's basically now immune to any any force of gravity that this will embolden him in spite of the fact it's the right thing for the Democrats to do and, and they ought to be doing it. Um, it's sort of, you know, I, I think I think puts us all in a rather a rather frightened um, frame of mind. 
um, that Trump can think, well, I can do anything. They can impeach me. It it doesn't change a thing. Right. And um, I, you know, I hope that I hope that Mitt Romney and others might rally a few Republicans to to actually regain their spines. But um, and it might well it it still could happen. But on current trajectory, this is this is a rather frightening scenario. It sure is. James, we have we're 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 hitting above our weight. I just love talking to him, and when I get a chance to talk to him with you and let other people listen in, it, I, I think it's really interesting. It's not exciting, and to tell you the truth, it's a little bit depressing. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's, just, that's, that's the, what the news is. That's the world we live in. Yeah, Ed, I just want one commitment. I agree with everything James says. You'll come back. I will definitely come back, and I I, I will I will try and gate crash the the Carville family reunion because that sounds like fun. Well, I think every, everybody. <laughs> to do that. Ed Luce, it's been terrific. Nice to have you here. Delight. Thank you. There seems to be uh, a great clash going on. Elizabeth Warren put out the word last week that she's rejecting the Carville approach to this campaign. What do you think? Well, I, this is, as I understand it, this is the phone call, the political call, and said she had made proposal, Medicare for All, and she also had a perversion of a funding mechanism for it, and then just stopped talking about it. And this is the largest policy proposal in modern American presidential history. I'm trying to think of something else. I don't think I can. This is 20% of the economy. Usually, in my experience in politics, when a, if a campaign makes a major policy proposal, particularly one of this magnitude that they want to talk about it. They want to defend it. They want it to be part of the conversation. They want to have cable shows around it. They want to have online debate or chat rooms or whatever the hell people do now. It's like they just said, okay, we're going to do this and then we're going to act like we never said it, which is to me is downright strange. And as I pointed out, maybe there's something that I don't know. Maybe there's a new thing out there. And maybe I'm stuck back in the, the 80s or the 90s. And, and I, I don't understand something about American politics. But for the life of me, I just don't understand it, not even remotely. I agree with I, you. I mean, it's strange. It, 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 it looks like that she wanted, if, if I had to guess, it looks like somebody in a meeting said, let's not let Bernie get to the left of us because right. we, we, he'll suck up the oxygen, so we'll just say this and act like it never happened. I, I, I don't know. But but the, other, the one thing I do know is the other side gets to talk. And the, people are going to talk about this a lot. I mean, I was in Las Vegas, Albert. I think about this. Very, very critical state in the Democratic, the Nevada caucus is a very critical. Mm -hmm. The single, and one of the things that I, one of the reasons I love Las Vegas, I love Las Vegas, is I know that everybody that waits on me is making significantly more than minimum wage. I know that every, from the bellman to the hotel maid to anybody else, I know they have health insurance, all right? I, 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 that, that makes me feel good as a tourist. So you're going to go in there, and the culinary union is, it takes great pride. They're, they're very, Harry Reid, thank you so much, sir. It, it, really powerful, and I think a, a really good force in, 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 in Nevada, and in, in particularly Las Vegas. So you're going to go to these culinary union members and tell them they're all out of their, their health care, they've been negotiated and bled for over the years to, to be in Medicare? I, they're not going to like that. I, I don't think they're going to like that at all. And I don't think union people around the 
around the country. What, but why are we taking them out of hard negotiated health care uh, plans? And we say, well, don't worry. Over the extent of your life, you'll save money. You, I, I don't. I don't think that's going to work. Or, or at least there has to be an answer for it. What happens to the market cap of all of these? companies that sell health insurance, are they just going to be out of business one day or, or, or pension funds or, or right. whatever that invest in them? Are they just going to lose all their money? I, I, I don't know the answers to these. Well, the you know, to quote uh, the fabled Joe Lewis, uh, uh, let me uh, warn Elizabeth Warren on this issue. Uh, you know, uh, you, you can run, but you cannot hide. Uh, and at some point, she's going to have to take this up. Listen, this is a week. Uh, the other let day. Me quote, let, me, let me quote another boxer. Aren't Mike. Everybody got a plan to hit him in the mouth. Yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> but but on uh, this week, Washington's dominated by impeachment. Uh, you know, a day or so ago, uh, the House Intelligence Committee began. Uh, James, this is a very clear-cut case. You can decide you don't think a president ought to be impeached. You can decide you think a president shouldn't be convicted. But he clearly engaged in a quid pro quo. It is it is absolutely undeniable, certifiable. They've lied about it. The Republicans have tried every possible explanation. My favorite latest one is that Trump just wanted to root out corruption in the Ukraine because Trump is a great anti-corruption guy. It's kind of like saying, you know, Harvey Weinstein wanted to look at gender discrimination. I mean, there really is. It's just clear cut. Well, I, I think that. I would frame it a little bit different than that. You wouldn't do the right. Harvey Weinstein bit. No, you, but, but you, I don't know about the Harvey Weinstein. What he clearly did was he was trying to use the, the constitutionally granted powers to him for his own personal political gain. If you do that as a, as in a company, you're fired on the spot. If if, if I work if, 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 if I work for a company if you you run the Wall Street Journal as you did, you were the, the bureau chief of the Wall Street Journal, and you said, "Hey, James, I want to get my kid in the two lane." And I said, "If if you write a good column, I'll get your kid in the two lane." You're using your place for your own personal gain. You would be fired in 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 a tenth of a second, as you well should be, if you ever did anything like that. This is what he was doing. It, it actually was, was was breaking the law because it was it was constitutionally appropriated under the the proper under under Congress, but he was trying to use his leverage and power that is granted to him by the people of the United States for his personal political gain. There can't be any higher crime than that. Right? There's just none. You can't. It, it's worse. And in, in, if you think about it, in terms of a constitutional question, it, it's worse than shooting somebody in the myth, in the middle of Fifth Avenue, because you're taking some something that you were granted. And using it for your own personal political gain—it's just—it's it's ridiculous. And that's—that's that's exactly what happened. And there's not any doubt, by the way. No one doubts that that's what happened. Yeah. Well, if—if if this is an abuse of power, then we're going to have to redefine the whole constitutional system because this is, as you say, as flagrant abuse as you can possibly imagine. They're going to have the people who are testifying. Uh, this week and next week, James, are not a bunch of left-wing, anti-Trump, uh, Bernie Sanders-loving, Volvo-driving uh, people from Vermont. They are distinguished foreign service officers, ambassadors, military veterans who worked in this administration. Right. All right look, if people, if, if, if you look at this set of facts, 
and you're not repulsed, I mean, I mean, really repulsed, then I, I, I'd, li- I'd like an explanation for it. And the one explanation that I don't buy is everybody else does it. I've never known. I've never known this to happen. Mm-hmm. I, I, I literally, the only, I had a debate with Carl, and what the comeback was is Obama told Carl Putin aide that we'll negotiate after the election. Well, you know, that's not the, you know, Lincoln pressured Sherman to to take Atlanta before the election because he was about to lose. That's an entirely different thing. Of course it is. It's self-dealing. It doesn't even make any sense. It, it utterly, there, there is no defense that I can see the, the, to the underlying charge that he used his constitution. He tried. He attempted. I mean, it's the Robert Ray. Well, it didn't succeed. Well, I don't, that, the law doesn't give you credit for not succeeding. I guess if you if I if I shot you and missed, I'd be attempted murder. So if I hit you and you died, I guess I can't maybe I can't get the gas uh, the electric chair for attempted murder. But that's about it. Well, I, you, I, I mean, it's, an, yeah. it's absurd. I don't even understand their rationale. Well, Robert Ray, who was the uh, you know I guess the last of the so-called uh, Clinton special prosecutors, wrote a I thought a absurd piece in time in which he said you know it didn't succeed. Which you're right. Uh, that's it's totally irrelevant. If I if I hire a hitman, the hitman misses. It doesn't mean I'm innocent. But he also said, well, it wasn't. You know, there wasn't really a crime committed. And the uh, you know Madison and Hamilton said it has to be a crime. There wasn't a criminal code in 1787, James. So it's kind of hard for them to define a crime back then. But uh, that's why the Republican explanation keeps shifting. It, w- it was once well, it wasn't a quid pro quo. Then it was well, maybe it was, but it wasn't really a. It, you know, he was an anti-corruption guy. Then maybe, well, yeah, it was bad. Shouldn't have done it, but it's not impeaching. You know, Phil Zeckelow, and I, I, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing his name, but he was a Republican chief staff member on the 9-11 commission. Mm-hmm. And I know, I, I don't Zeckelow, think yeah. I've ever met him, but I know people that know him and they, they really respect him. I mean, he's a very good lawyer. And he, he, he pointed that it's a clear violation of the federal bribery statute. But he didn't miss any words. I, 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 it was pretty clear. He gave you all the elements that you had, the elements of proof of the federal Bible statute, and, and this thing meets the test to the nth degree. And he is hardly a, a Democratic partisan or, or, or any such thing as that, a left winger. Well, and and likewise, um, Bill Cohen, who, who was Clinton's defense secretary before that, uh, spent 22 years as a Republican member of Congress and was the key person on the 1974 impeachment committee and knows the issue as well as anybody, uh, said, if this isn't an impeachable offense, then we've redefined the whole sense of what is and the whole sense of a uh, Republican form of government. I, it's really, it's big stakes. He may not, he may well not be uh, convicted. That's the conventional wisdom. But for the House not to go through this now would be uh, abdication of responsibility, and and we'll see what happens. Um, They're going to go through with it. They no are. You that. They are. You know, we're joined now by uh, one of our favorite people who keeps us on the straight and narrow, I guess, the great Christy Harvey, who we've both known for 25 years. And uh, she doesn't have anything to do now because the Washington Nationals are no longer playing. 
so she can uh, she can kind of taunt and um, uh, and tease us. Go ahead. Christy. It's sort of amazing how much free time you have when baseball's over. Oh, wow. I'm like, I feel like I've got a whole extra week every May I interrupt just week. for a second, though? Do it. There's one exception. Yes. And, and I'm going to take a, an extra 30 seconds. <laughs> James, you can do a quick victory dance if you want for Tuscaloosa you know, last I, I Saturday for I, LSU, I am, Alabama. I, I am part of the co- – right now, Ole Miss is a classic trap game. All right, two weeks ago, they played Auburn. Oh, they lost by six he, points at all. poor mouth now. This week – up. This past weekend, they played New Mexico State in Oxford. All right, we had a, a, a tussle in Tuscaloosa, and we, you know, we were up, we got beat up, then we got to go back on the road and play. We is LSU, this, by the way, folks. Yeah, <laughs> if, you, if you listen to this show and you don't know who we is, and you got to go wee wee. <laughs> and, and we're coming, we're coming off of that. I mean, I think we're a better team than them. Look what happened to Kentucky against Evansville last night. I mean, anything can happen in sports. And and we're walking into, I I, I fear a trap. Now, I think Coach Ogeron has figured that out, and I'm sure they're going to stress that to the top football players. But you don't have any time when you're in SEC to go one game or another. Maybe Ole Miss is getting better. Who am I to say tonight? Well, I like Ole Miss's chances if you can take away that LSU quarterback, and that ain't going to happen. Christy, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, guys. I'm a sports monogamist. I am just all baseball all the time. That's kind of it. So uh, I'll take your word on the football. But um, I do have a number for you guys today, and that number is 70%. I, of course, like many people, care in the abstract about climate change. You know, I worry about it sometimes, think about it, but then sometimes something comes along where it really hits home. And for me, it was this piece in the Washington Post this week that said because of warming seas off the coast of Japan, it's devastating the salmon industry. And basically, over the last 15 years, 70 percent of the salmon in the seas off of Japan have disappeared. So I started to think about how when climate change gets personal, I get really invested. And it's the salmon. It's the fact that there is no more or less of a main lobster industry. It's becoming the Canadian lobster industry as the seas get too warm up there. Down in New Orleans, we've seen the devastation of, of oyster production because of freshwater and, and climate change issues. And so, you know, it just is starting to get really personal. Um, Al, how about you? Does, is there anything in this climate change argument that kind of gets your engine revving? Well, I'm going to uh, just spend 30 seconds because this is James Carville's issue. I mean, he has been talking about this and feels it with such incredible passion and knowledge. I really want him to expand on it. First, on a, on a I guess, uh, you know, a lighter note, one of the implications is the Louisville Slugger Bat Company says that the, the, with not as many trees, they're not going to be able to produce bats. And if they deny me Juan Soto hitting 50 home runs in seven years, I'll hate that. On a much, much more serious note, I think the pro, the, the people who understand this danger have to be focused on it. And by focus, the, the Green New Deal, I'm sure, has a lot of good things, but it throws the kitchen sink in. If this is an existential threat, then we ought to approach it as such. And we ought to consider, yeah. <laughs> we really ought to consider a nuclear power, carbon tax, and everything because it's that serious. But again, James Carville is, right. there's nobody who cares about this as much as James. So, uh, Christy, first of all, it, it, Brett Anderson, who wrote the story in the Times on the Oysters, is one of the best food critics in the country. He's yeah. won any number of awards. He lives in yours. Now, his dad was the governor of Minnesota. Really? Wendy? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I had, he came to my class last Tuesday, or Tuesday, this last Tuesday in, in, in Baton Rouge. And he's a terrific journalist and he, he understands climate 
it, as well as any as, as any journalist out there. So I, I'm going to take a little time here because this is really significant to me. I have been teaching this and trying to get young people really motivated by this. And, I, you know, they will been, they'll, they'll give me the answer, but I, 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 we're missing something in this debate. I called Sean Lentz, who was the chairman of the history department at Princeton, and I said, Sean, what's the time in history where people acted against their perceived short-term interest? And he said, try the British anti-slave trade movement. And he recommended a book called Bury the Chains by Adam Hochschild. He is the husband of Arlie Russell Hochschild, who wrote the terrific book about uh, strangers in their own land, about the southwest Louisiana Trump people. And I was reading the book, and something hit me. The problem with the climate movement is it is the only major social or political movement that uses no emotion. The British anti-slave trade had the greatest song in the history of the English language, Amazing Grace. They used Wedgwood China. They they used diagrams. It, it somehow or another, the, 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 we don't have, there's no, there's no, there's not a rainbow flag I can put in my window. Mm-hmm. There's not a, I, there's not an anchor and globe lapel pin that I can wear that says I was in the Marine Corps. There's not a purple and gold cap that I could wear that says I'm an LSU fan. There's not a curly W to the whole goddamn movement. And until people understand that emotion is a central and necessary ingredient to bring people to action, we're going to continue down this road. And we need a goddamn song. We need a piece of art. We need a bumper sticker. We need a lapel pin. We need a... Every, everybody has a song. Everybody, if I show you a crucifix, a cross, a, a crescent, a star David, you know exactly what it is. And there's no universal symbol for people that are just distraught about what's happening to the world. And I, and I think we're missing a big, a big part of this. So somebody give me a goddamn song. You know what? Somebody give James his goddamn song. I think that um, uh, all the listeners of the Politics War Roommates, uh, come find us on Twitter. We're at at Politics War Room or email us at politicswarroom at gmail.com. And and send James his song. Send in yeah, your, give your me a piece, art. Give me a piece of art. Give Let's me, get give a haiku. Me a, anything. Okay. I'll, I'll take anything. We want to hear from you out there. Send you know, it attention emotion even good or bad i mean think of all of the way that evil uses emotion absolutely I mean, swastikas or, you know if i put a confederate flag in the back of my pickup truck you know exactly what i'm telling you I'm, i can communicate with you instantly okay we we expect an outpouring this week uh james's james's song uh christy as always thank you and we'll be with you next week James, we're going to close. We're going to do a final segment, real, real short. Uh, we're going to start off calling it Backpage, and it's just going to be whatever really jumps into our mind. It can be something we love, something we hate. Uh, and i do it real quickly. I'll start. My subject is Nikki Haley, who this week decided she was going to be a Trumpite forever, and she said that John Kelly and Rex Tillerson were trying to undermine Donald Trump's foreign policy, which, of course, is a disaster. They were trying to save the country, and she refused to go along. And I want to just say, my, I want to quote Michael Gerson, a conservative writer in the Washington Post, said that Haley ignored her conscience, betrayed her colleagues, and injured her country. 
She said that Donald Trump tells the truth. That means she does not. <laughs> you know, I, can't, I mean, I don't know what Nikki Haley was thinking. And, I mean, I, of course I know what she was thinking. She's thinking that he's going to dump Pence and pick her as vice president. But, and it, you know, that may happen. It's not impossible that that happens. Uh, my thing is not so much of an outrage. It's a column in the New York Times by uh, Timothy Egan, who I'd read before, didn't, you know, have him read him religiously. I was kind of liked him about his sister in eastern Oregon who who uh, apparently has some, some issues and works at the Walmart and is a diehard Trump supporter because the, the Democrats and the urbanists in this party, he had an urban wing of the Democratic Party that dismisses everybody that is not part of the hip, the diverse, the, the, the you-name-it coalition, and these people hear it. And it's about how his sister... You know, think with, with with some justification that major parts of the Democratic Party do not value rural people, in particularly rural white people, the same way we we value urban people, and that's just not that. That's a losing. We're not trying to win elections here. We're trying to to prove a point, or we're trying to you know, we're trying to convince people that we're better than them, and that that's just a stupid point in politics, a really stupid point. Now, I thought that. I don't know Mr. Egan, and I, I, I thought it was a well-written column, and I think it made a point that, that should resonate out there all across the, the Democratic coalition. Uh, amen. I agree. It was the New York Times last Saturday, Timothy Egan. Uh, and please write in, send James his song, his poem, my song, baby. his verse. <laughs> you know, do it. Do it for James, uh, okay? Hey, thank you, everybody. Thank you, James Carville over in London. Uh, and Ed Luce, uh, who was here, great guest. And the old, I think Ed is probably our old time favorite. He, he, well, he's up there with Christy Harvey. Well, uh, Christy is part of the family. She's special. Okay. She's All right. We'll be talking to you next week. You bet.